to Cancer HealthCast, where science is driving hope. I'm your host, Nikki Henderson. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kelly Crotty, who is the Program Director in the Center for Strategic Scientific Initiatives at the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Crotty also directs the NCI Innovative Molecular Analysis Technology, or IMAP, program, which supports early-stage technology development for cancer research. Today, she will be discussing IMAT's history, as well as sharing details about NCI's Informatics Technology for Cancer Research Program. Hello, Kelly, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hi, thank you, Nikki. Happy to be here. Well, Kelly, I'd like for you to start off by talking about the overall mission of NCI's Center for Strategic Scientific Initiatives and Tell us how it's advancing cancer research and transforming patient care. Sure. So the Center for Strategic Scientific Initiatives, or CSSI, invests in exploratory research programs and tries to create opportunities for researchers to overcome barriers or hurdles in their research through the development of new scientific initiatives, tools, and resources. So Over the years, CSSI has housed several pilot programs, such as the Physical Sciences and Oncology Network or the Clinical Proteomic Tumor Analysis Consortium, CPTAC. Um, But once they're established, most of those programs move out of CSSI into one of NCI's divisions. Um, We do continue to coordinate very large programs that don't really fit into one individual division, such as the Cancer Grand Challenges Program, which is a collaboration with the Cancer Research UK and supports very large-scale international collaborations, um, as well as the IMAT and ITCR programs that we'll get into later in the conversation. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, can you please tell us a little bit about the history of uh, the Innovative Molecular Analysis Technologies Program, why it was created, and how is it fueling innovation when it comes to diagnosing and treating cancer? Yeah, so the IMAT program, the first grant for the IMAT program was awarded 25 years ago, back in 1999. And the creation of this program is partially inspired by the Human Genome Project, which took place kind of throughout the 90s. Um, And the sequence of the human genome has certainly driven discovery and understanding in a variety of diseases. Um, But a lot of new genomic technologies were also being developed in order to accomplish that really ambitious endeavor. And those technologies have continued to make an impact beyond that project and transformed a number of areas of biomedical research. And so while that project was underway, NCI was really interested in how can we continue to stimulate creativity and drive technical innovation um, in the pursuit of cancer research and improving patient care. Um, And they found that the standard review at NIH is very good at evaluating hypothesis-driven research, but projects that were proposing new ideas for innovative technologies were often being considered to be too risky. Even if they would have the potential to transform research, they weren't being prioritized because of the perceived risk by the reviewers. And so IMAT was created to give a home for these high-risk, high-reward technology development projects. Um, IMAT grants are relatively small awards, but they provide that seed funding or launch platform for new creative ideas and to give researchers an opportunity 
to test the feasibility of their really interesting technological ideas. Um, there are a lot of technologies that are now well known and widespread in cancer research, such as um, mud pit, rolling circle amplification, ROMA, bead chip and bead array from Illumina, um, Protax, activity-based protein profiling, imaging mass spectrometry, um, and a lot of other technologies were all supported in their early stages through the IMAP program. And when we think about technical innovation, I think that it's really interesting to think about what's driving technical innovation because new technologies spur new biological uh, discoveries, and then those discoveries can in turn cause new technologies to be developed. And so we think about the Human Genome Project where this need we wanted to sequence the human genome really drove a lot of new sequencing technologies and other genomic technologies. But there are other examples such as the CRISPR-Cas9 system where it was kind of the other way around. So CRISPR is sort of this system that's part of the bacterial adaptive immune system, you might think of it as, um, against viruses. And thinking about how bacteria protect themselves from viruses, that's very far away from human health for the most part. But discovering this system and how bacteria um, can edit their own genes has allowed us to create and adapt that uh, system to human gene editing and really enables a lot of new technologies and a lot of new research that was previously intractable. Oh, wow. You said 25 years ago it was created. That's amazing. And it's wonderful to hear about this program. Um, well, Kelly, what role has technology played in helping researchers better understand how cancer grows, uh, discover new screening methods, and help to develop new therapies? Yeah, so this is a question that's sort of where do I even start, right? Because there are so many technologies that have brought us forward. Almost every discovery or breakthrough is due to some new technology that, that allowed that to happen. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about a couple of specific areas that I think are really exciting. So there's um, spatial omics. So previously we had genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, right? All these omic technologies um, and in recent years, we've started to integrate all of these omics to what we call multi-omics, and also not just understand all of the DNA, RNA, or protein in a cell, but where those cells are in relation to each other, right, which creates this field of spatial omics. Um, so for a long time, these cellular and molecular analysis methods homogenized tumor samples. So you would get bulk measurements. What's the average DNA content of these cells? Um, but recent develops, developments in single cell technologies have really revolutionized how we assess cellular heterogeneity. Um, and so these breakthroughs have revealed that both malignant uh, tumor cells and non-malignant cells, such as the stromal cells or the immune cells that make up the tumor microenvironment, are both highly dynamic and very diverse at the cellular and molecular level. And so spatial omics have revealed the complexity of interactions between tumor cells and immune cells, um, reveals a lot about metastasis, uh, therapeutic resistance, where maybe a small number of the cells are resistant to therapy because they're different in some way from the other ones. And we wouldn't have known that if we're doing bulk measurements. We really need this single cell understanding. Um, the Human Tumor Atlas Network, which was created out of the Cancer Moonshot, um, has developed a lot of really interesting spatial omics technologies and 
Um, for example, they revealed that transitions um, to invasive breast cancer is associated with changes in the structure and the composition of tumor stroma. And they depended on these new spatial omics methods to understand that. Another really interesting technology that's gone through a lot of changes over the years is mass spectrometry. So mass spec measures the mass to charge ratio of a particle, um, which basically allows researchers to determine the relative abundance of different chemicals in a sample. So proteins, metabolites, and so forth. Um, and mass spec has been a common research tool for almost a hundred years now. Um, but over the decades, um, these technologies are continuing to evolve with new ion source design, enhancement of the resolution and the sensitivity, um, miniaturization of the actual instrument, um, automation, and, and all of these other developments that have made the method a lot more widespread for use in um, both a lot more research areas, but also in the clinic for routine testing to improve the sensitivity of disease screening, therapeutic drug monitoring, um, diagnostic testing. We've the, the IMAP program has supported a lot of various mass spec technologies over the years, um, imaging mass spectrometry, um, MIBI. Um, one that I'm really excited about is called Mass Spec Pen, where they've taken this mass spec instrument, which used to be large, complex, required a lot of expertise to use, required a lot of time to get your readout due to complicated um, preparation of the sample. And they made it into an automated handheld device that could be used in real time, for example, in the operating suite. Um, and so anybody could use this mass spec pen, place it on the surface of a tissue. Um, it would extract biomolecules from the surface of that tissue and then provide a, a cancer diagnosis so that you might be able to tell, is there cancer there or not? What are the boundaries of the cancer while you're operating? Um, and it's fast time to results, easy to use, really exciting device that was originally supported through IMAT. Um, and I'll give just one more example here. I know I'm going on on this question, but yeah, that's um, great. another exciting uh, technology is a synthetic biology method called proteolysis targeting chimeras or protax. Um, so protax are small molecules that will bind to a protein of interest and then target that protein for degradation using the cell's ubiquitin proteasome system. Um, early stage development of protax took place over the last 20 or more years. Um, and unlike most protein inhibitors that are used as therapies, which bind a protein and then inactivate it, but kind of leave that protein in the cell, protax causes the degradation of the protein. And so for a long time, that was allowing us to study oncoproteins in really interesting ways. We could study the non-canonical roles of an oncoprotein independent of catalytic activity, uh, study the structure activity relationships, and gain other insights into cancer biology. Um, but of course, people also saw that this was a really interesting opportunity to use protax as a therapy, because again, it doesn't just bind the protein, it destroys it. Um, and in the last five or so years, several protac-based therapies have entered clinical trials. And so that was kind of an exciting development that this technology that was originally used to kind of understand cancer biology has now become a therapy that uh, appears to be doing very well in clinical trials for a variety of targets.
Wow. Well, you've told me here that technology truly is critical or has played a critical role in screening for cancer as well as treating it. And this is, I mean, this is very exciting and very promising. Well, can you talk about some of the exciting technologies breaking ground in cancer research today? For example, what are the benefits you're seeing with AI? And also, what are some of the challenges you're facing? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is definitely a, a hot topic right now. And um, there's been this huge increase in computing power through GPUs and excess scale computing um, that's really breaking down barriers to analysis that were previously impossible. Um, so artificial intelligence is being used in a variety of ways. Um, machine learning, especially, which is Machine learning is teaching computers to learn patterns and then make decisions or make predictions based on those patterns. Um, and a subset of machine learning is large language models, which have been really hot right now. Um, and these large language models or LLMs are machine learning models that are trained on words or other text or letter-based content. And these learn the complicated associations and relationships between words or letters. Um, and so these can be used in a variety of ways in biomedical research. It could be used in patient care. Um, you could have a large language model that learns based on textbooks or manuscripts or publications. And then you can imagine a chatbot that might interact with the patient and answer all of their questions about their disease without that patient having to try and look it up themselves. Um, you can also imagine a lot of applications for large language models in medical research, um, such as summarizing scientific concepts for medical education. There's a lot of large language models that are trying to predict protein structures. So proteins are just sequences of amino acids, which can be represented as letters. Or DNA, again, sequences of nucleotides represented as letters. And so these large language models can recognize patterns in the DNA sequence, in the protein sequence, and then predict new protein structures or predict um, regulatory dynamics of genes or splice sites or protein binding sites. And so AlphaFold2, that's a big large language model that's come out recently. There's also GeneFormer, DNA-BERT, so there's a lot of exciting applications and uh, even uses for large language models currently in biomedical research. Um, and then, as you said, there's also a lot of limitations, um, not just for large language models, but artificial intelligence in general. Um, there's a lot of ethical concerns. You think back on that example of a patient interacting with a chatbot, and you have to wonder what model was that trained on? What mm -hmm. textbooks did it read? What online information did it gather? And are all of those sources verified and validated so that you feel confident that the information being provided is accurate? Um, there's also a problem with coherence. A lot of large language models have um, gotten much, much better at this, but especially early on, these models are not understanding concepts they're looking at word associations. So these words usually are used in sequence and then they'll, they'll create that as an output, but they don't understand what it means. They're just recognizing the patterns. 
And so there's also um, concerns with machine learning models in terms of what data set it was modeled on or trained on. And now what data are you asking it to make predictions about? Um, so you might have an institution that's training a um, machine learning model to look at an MRI and predict whether there's cancer there or not. And so you provide the machine learning model with a series of images and say, these ones have cancer and these ones don't, and it's trained. And then you give it a new image it hasn't seen before, and you ask it to make a prediction. But if that training set, if all of those images were gathered from one population of patients, and the new image is somebody different who might have different biology, different structure, the machine learning model is not going to be as accurate. Um, and so one thing that we can do to overcome those limitations is to create really high quality training data sets um, that represent a very diverse patient population. But that itself is, is a challenge to collect enough data from a variety of different sites to represent diverse people um, and collect that data at a centralized location to achieve the data set necessary to train an accurate model. And we run into um, concerns related to patient privacy, data ownership, intellectual property, network and date and storage limitations, compliance with regulatory policies. And that's particularly difficult if you're trying to do this at a global scale. And so federated learning is something that has tremendous potential, um, particularly towards addressing health disparities, underserved populations, and rare diseases where you see this accuracy problem being particularly difficult. Um, so Spiros Bacchus actually was supported through our ITCR program, which was also housed within the, the CSSI group. Um, and he got ITCR support to create this federated training model um, for machine learning. So rather than needing a diverse set of data, he sent the model to multiple different institutions and each institution trained that model on their data set and then sent it off to the next institution. So you didn't have to share data. You sort of just passed the model around so that the model was able to be trained on all of the data without running into these complicated data sharing issues. Um, and he was able to train a model on 71 different sites from six different continents in order to generate a really robust automatic tumor boundary detector for glioblastoma. Um, so there's still a lot of challenges in AI, but it's really exciting to see the creativity that people are, are coming up with in order to overcome some of these challenges too. Right, and Kelly, you said it, it's a hot topic right now. Everywhere you hear AI, AI, and while there are there are definitely challenges that need to be overcome. It's proving to be very beneficial to cancer research, which is wonderful. So earlier in our conversation, Kelly, you talked about IMAT, but there's another major program at CSSI that you're involved with called Informatics Technology for Cancer Research. Can you tell me more about the ITCR program and how informatics tool development is driving significant progress in clinical care. Yeah, so um, as progress in these new sophisticated high throughput data acquisition technologies, such as all the tools created through the IMAP program, um, as those new technologies continue to develop, 
that has resulted in just an explosion of data. So the amount of data that researchers are generating is increasing at exponential rates. And this has necessitated advances in informatics me methods, software, um, and other resources that are necessary to process, manage, analyze, and integrate these data and derive biological insights because data is only as useful as your ability to derive meaning from it. Um, so ITCR was founded in 2013 and ITCR funds the development, advancement and sustainment of informatics tools and resources that support diverse domains um, such as cancer genomics, intracellular networks, histology image or medical image analysis, electronic health record information extraction, radiation therapy and many others. And a central pillar of the program is connecting the development of these tools with the driving needs of cancer research. And the program places particular emphasis on user-friendly and open access tools that are freely available to researchers in academic or not-for-profit organizations. And the tools ITCR has supported over the years, um, it's supported over 100 informatics tools at this point, and it includes some of the most widely used informatics tools in cancer research, such as um, Galaxy, Topaz, IGV, or CBioPortal. Um, and there's, I think, one really exciting example of an ITCR um, technology is XNet, which was developed by Dan Marcus. And Dan Marcus created XNAT back in 2003. Um, he was a postdoc trying to do a large-scale study of the neurobiology of Alzheimer's disease, um, but there were not tools to handle the analysis of large numbers of images. Co uh, commercial tools were only available for individual patient care. And so he built XNAT, which is Extensible Imaging Neural Archive Toolkit, as a solution to support data sharing and large-scale analysis of Alzheimer's images. And in 2016, several years later, he received ITCR fun funding in order to customize XNAT for cancer research to allow people to interact with images, annotate the images and store those an annotations. He added CT images um, functionality within the, the software. And so XNAT today has been deployed in the majority of cancer centers. And we were really excited that he came to the ITCR program because he had created a really elegant solution to research in another area with Alzheimer's disease. Um, but now he was adapting this for cancer research at all, as well, which had its own specific um, needs and requirements. Um, the ITCR support was renewed in 2020 in order to support even larger data sets, as well as add artificial intelligence models. And the platform, which is free for academic use, um, is now partnering with the company Flywheel in order to commercialize and continue to expand the functionality of the platform and expand the user base. That's a very good story. I, I really like to hear that. I mean, uh, XNAT not only helping those with Alzheimer's, but also helping in the area of cancer research. That is really amazing. Well, liquid biopsy, which has become an emerging field allows minimally invasive molecular characterization of cancers for diagnosis, therapy selection, and longitudinal monitoring. How is NCI's Liquid Biopsy Consortium addressing the technical and clinical challenges associated with liquid biopsies? 
So the Liquid Biopsy Consortium is actually led by NCI's Division of Cancer Prevention in order to bring together in partners in academia and in industry in order to advance and validate liquid biopsy technologies for early cancer detection. Um, and I found that it's been really exciting to watch that division launch this program and develop it because a lot of the liquid biopsy tools that are being tested for clinical applicability in the program were actually supported years ago in the very early stages through the IMAP program. And so we've been able to see this technology that at some point was just an idea somebody came to us with, kind of grow, be validated, hardened, and now tested for clinical applicability. Um, and even those liquid biopsy technologies that didn't come through the IMAP program are, they're all based on technologies that were advanced in the mid to late 2000s. Next generation sequencing, methylation profiling, blood sorting, um, new sample preparation methods. Um, so the Liquid Biopsy Consortium is working on establishing more rigorous scientific basis for understanding the evidence for cancer biomarker signatures that are evident in blood at very early stages of disease development. And they're working to establish some interest in standardizing assay performance and validation testing. Um, the group is also working with FDA in order to develop a better appreciation for the unique regulatory questions that are relevant to very early cancer detection. And I think this consortium is a great example of the role that NCI can play in technology development. So we have a number of programs to support that very early stage development. But NCI can also push things forward in ways that individual labs couldn't do by themselves by bringing together these multiple groups that they're all working together, um, creating standards and standardized assays, um, as well as bringing together academia with industry and coordinating with other agencies, with FDA and, and so forth. And so going forward, liquid biopsies will be further tested in uh, the Division of Cancer Prevention's Cancer Screening Research Network, uh, which is supporting large multi-center screening trials um, to understand how we can use liquid biopsies and how they can create opportunities for intervention or, or early uh, catching cancer earlier. Right. And the earlier you catch it, obviously, the greater that a person's chance of survival. So I definitely would like to maybe get an update down the road about this to see what progress you're making uh, with the Liquid Biopsy Consortium. So thank you for sharing that, Kelly. And before we conclude, I wanted to know, do you have any final comments or remarks that you would like to leave with our listeners? Um, yeah, I think that we talked a lot about cancer AI and we could probably spend an entire podcast on that, but NCI does have the Cancer AI Conversations, which are a bi-monthly webinar that really delve deeply into some of the opportunities and challenges of AI and cancer. And so anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, I encourage them to look at that. Um, the IMAT program has new funding opportunities every year. Our next due date is April 1st, and then there's another one October 1st. And so anyone with an idea for a new, exciting, creative technology is welcome to come check out that program. And we're really excited at some of the new technologies that are being developed there. And I think that, you know, years down the road, I'm going to be bragging to everybody that 
you know, my program provided the seed funding for this technology that is now really changing the game in cancer research. Right. That's very exciting. Thank you so much again for sharing that. And Kelly, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation um, and I appreciate you taking out time to speak with me about all of the exciting programs and technologies that are being used at NCI to, of course, help advance cancer research. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nikki. HealthCast, along with GovCast and CyberCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. To explore our content, visit our website, govciomedia.com. Keep an eye out for new episodes every Tuesday. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Have a topic you want us to discuss? Contact us at newsletter at govcio.com.